0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you doing today?
1: I do well, Robert. How are you?
0: Well, you know, it, it's been it's been quite a season, and, and you know maybe ramping <laughs> down slightly. Um, you know we're we're at least back to normal for the show a little bit. We got you know we got guests on the horizon. I, I'm recording the show. You don't have to like scramble to figure out how to do it, and you know I've I've got my computer and not like some television that's hooked up to a tower. Uh, you know we're we're in good shape. We're in good shape yeah, with the we're, show.
1: we're somewhat back in business. We
0: are. Yeah, we're somewhat. We never left business. We were just like put together with bubble gum and string and now we're like yeah with the same sort of situation as we usually are existing in so that's good uh anyways That being said, we have a good show. We have a good show lined up for everybody. There was some fun news this week. Uh, The the thing that Jasmine's going to be talking to us first is about the SB-150 implementation. We talked a ton about SB-150 when it was making its way through the legislature this winter and spring, like the early part of 2023. It passed. We were very upset about it. We were very frustrated by it. And the implementation has brought to light some interesting facts about it, which may render the whole bill kind of, you know, less bad uh we're going to talk a little bit about that what the prospects are for for this gambit by the kentucky department of education working uh and how that all came to be and then i i have several quick hits like five or six some of them are pretty big uh stuff to check out uh journalism pieces that i feel like are worth reading and and just some other pieces of smaller news uh that we'll close the show out with so without any further ado jasmine tell us about sb 150
1: okay so of course Senate bill 150 was the anti-trans legislation that passed this past session um, that was sponsored by Max Wise, but became perhaps an even more comprehensive bill um, at the last minute. And so, Last Monday, the Kentucky Department of Education released new guidance saying that the use of or instead of and in a bulleted list of prohibited items contained in Senate Bill 150 allows school districts to teach students about sexual orientation or gender identity if they so choose. So the word or links proposed bans on any instruction on human sexuality or sexually transmitted diseases in grades K through five to a ban on instruction on gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation for all grades. So the guidance says that schools should interpret the use of or as a directive to choose one of those two bans.
0: Which typically is what the word or means, I will say.
1: Right. So that means schools could choose to ban kindergarten through fifth grade education on human sexuality and STDs. Or they can ban discussion on gender identity and sexual orientation. But it doesn't have to be both. It's an or. Right.
0: Right. And, That's
1: yeah. what the bill says.
0: That's what the bill says, and that is what KDE said is their guidance for implementation of, of the bill, right?
1: Yeah, so there was guidance released in April that did not mention this. Of course, that was right after the bill passed, and that was likely before KDE staff or their staff attorneys um, had much of a chance to dig into all of the requirements of the bill and do the necessary research on like statutory interpretation and everything. Because I mean, that's, that's really what this is, is is a matter of statutory interpretation, you know, like looking at the language and which clause does this conjunction go with? And how do we interpret the language in the bill? Um, And, and so, there was a lot in that bill and there's a lot of research that had to be done, not just about this specifically, but, but other parts of the bill too. And um, because there's other things that come into play like FERPA, which has to do with um, like right to privacy stuff in education and also um, discrimination stuff, which I'm going to mention a little bit in this segment as well. So There was a lot of work that needed to be done by KDE when this bill was passed. And so, when they released guidance in April, um, there was probably still additional work and research that needed to be done. And that's probably why it was updated.
0: Yeah. And that's very common for bills of all types, right? I mean, if you pass a tax cut or a tax break for a certain industry, like whoever is in charge of implementing that has to do research about the federal laws around that tax break or, or you know, local uh, regulation around that to make, see how it fits in. And and that's kind of what the executive branch does is issue guidance about how best to implement these types of policies, implement the bills that are passed by the legislature, given the entire environment that's around it. So, so this is definitely within the purview of the Kentucky Department of Education. It's it's just that they're they they are probably working in a way and doing some work um, that f- kind of suits the you know suits the suits the uh, you know the viewpoint of the KDE a little bit more than probably the legislature that passed it and I guess the, you're going to be getting into that a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, certainly. And so Max Wise, he was the sponsor of the original Senate Bill 150, um, and you know what passed was not. The bill as he sponsored it, but he certainly still supported the bill. Um, he said that the role of the executive branch is to faithfully execute the law. The Bashir administration is, by extension of Commissioner Jason Glass and the Kentucky Department of Education, making a feeble attempt to undermine the law and shamelessly inject politics into, into Kentucky classrooms. Um, he also cited a court ruling from 1952 that allows, when necessary, to carry out the obvious intention of the legislature, disjunctive words can be construed as conjunctive and vice versa. So that quote <laughs> says can, it doesn't say must. I was about to say community.
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: it seems like a permissive thing, not mandatory. Um, and. And what I read didn't didn't say the name of the case. I I didn't have his full remarks, um, and so I'm not. I, I wasn't sure of the name of the case to read the entire case. And, and I think like a lot of people are calling this a loophole, and I don't like calling it a loophole. Um, it's not a loophole. I would, yeah. It's not a loophole. It's it's how the, the bill the is, written. <laughs> is written. and I would I would say it's a mistake. Um, yes. By. The Republicans who drafted the law, um, because I, I don't think that this was their um, what they meant for it to be, probably. But um, it's still what they passed, and it's still a law that makes sense um, you to interpret it that way. Uh, so,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is not an unusual situation that we find ourselves within in in the Bashir administration. Andy Bashir and his administration and his executive branch has never had uh, a good relationship with the legislature which has always been dominated by Republicans since he came into office. So what ha- what happens typically is the Republicans will write laws and and, and in large part, a lot of their bigger wins have been sloppy, have been badly written, have had issues because they're slapped together at the last second. And Jasmine, you already mentioned this. SB 150 went through significant changes right at the end of the session. They they made some big, big changes to the bill itself. They had to kind of rush it through at the last second. Uh, you know, there wasn't much debate on it at the end. You know, there was all all these protests and it passed during the last couple of days of the session, and and then it was vetoed, and then it had to be overridden. And there's like a lot of business that the legislature had to attend to with SB 150. And so, you know, this is not a bill, that has been undergone the process of consensus building in the state, has been bringing along all of the stakeholders, like the educators, like the administrators, like the school systems themselves, like the executive branch, like the legislature, all of whom have a stake in how this bill is written and how this bill is interpreted, and having them come up with something that works for everybody. This is the legislature shoving something in front of everybody and saying, this is how you have to do it. And of course, the Kentucky Department of Education, of course, the JCPS School Board, of course, Everybody's going to f- try to find ways around it because they don't like the law. You didn't work <laughs> with them to try to figure it out, and you left this this thing wide open. It's not a loophole because it's the language of the law. The word is or. You wrote it that way. That's the only way anybody can read it. And, yes, there is this court case which says if – if the interpreting authority would like to use, uh, you know, construe what does it say? Construe these conjunctive words as, uh, you know, Dis- whatever.
1: Disjunctive words can be construed as conjunctive, right? And vice versa. And,
0: and, and, but you can, right? And and if and if you have built up this law through this process of consensus building, and everybody's on the same page, and yeah, oh wow. We made a mistake there. That word should have been and or or. And, and the it, the person who's interpreting the law and the person that's putting in place is like, oh, geez. Yeah, we all missed it in that meeting. We're just going to do it. You don't have to go back the next year and, and pass a bill that changes it. That's allowed. But the thing is, you don't have to. It wouldn't even make sense to force. Like, how could this even be construed in a different way where like – uh, disjunctive words must be construed as conjunctive. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You couldn't even do it that way. That wouldn't be, you know, feasible uh, given given uh, how laws work and how implementation works. So yes, the 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 legislature screwed up because that's the way that they legislate. They legislate based on pure power. Pure power. They have the power to do it, and so they will do it. And they don't care at all about consensus building, about working with people. They just want everyone else to do it exactly the way that they do it, and they're going to try to force people to do it. So, you know, I'm not surprised that the KDE found this issue and implemented, uh, you know, put their their guidance forth that says, you can certainly ignore this or that because that's the way it's written.
1: Yeah, and I can't remember exactly what happened i would have to go back and look from our look at our notes from this bill but i think what happened was like there was a there was a meeting called with like six minutes before lunch or something and that's when they got the committee sub for this bill and the committee sub wasn't available publicly or something like that all, all, that, there was, is that right? There's so <laughs>
0: many pieces of this. They couldn't even do consensus building inside of their own caucus, right? That That's the reason why SB 150 had all of these issues, is because they're, you know, Max, uh, the, 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 the things that I heard, the rumors or tweets or whatever that I saw, was like Max Wise wanted to go a certain way. There were hardliners like Josh Calloway and a couple of other people that really wanted to go a much harsher direction. Um, they could not figure out how to do it. And eventually, the Josh Calloways and the, the harder line people ended up winning the, the battle. And the committee sub had this harsher language attached to it. it. It kind of all came together at the last second. The Democrats were totally cut out of it. They saw a committee sub at the last second. Even some members of the Republican Party saw it at the last second because of how this all came together so it wasn't it definitely was just done done very haphazardly very last second very shadily uh no transparency whatsoever and yeah that's that's how this all came together and when you have you know 75 percent majorities in both chambers you are able to pass bills this way but you cannot force people to implement them the way that you want them because you do not control that process and thank goodness they don't
1: yeah so Um, A little bit about the administration's perspective. Um, KDE spokesperson Tony Kahn's Tatman said the Kentucky General Assembly chose to use the conjunction or not. And when it comes to state law, words have meaning and KDE simply read the words adopted by the General Assembly. Beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that, right? <laughs>
0: Tony Q Statsman also has one of the best tweets I've ever seen. She, uh, Jack Harlow, just like randomly tweeted at her one day and she just responded back by saying, what's popping? You know, it was, it was very funny.
1: <laughs> Governor Bashir said, if you pass a law saying you can do this or that, it's a lot different than a law saying you must do this and that. Whether or not it was intentional or unintentional, it was the law that they passed. This is what happens when you shield a law from the public. Senate Bill 150 also requires school districts to adopt bathroom policies, but the KDE guidance notes that there's a Sixth Circuit case and Kentucky as part of the Sixth Circuit, and the KDE guidance notes that it's settled law in the Sixth Circuit um, that sex stereotyping based on a person's gender non-conforming behavior is impermissible discrimination, impermissible discrimination. And so districts should consult with board counsel for legal advice regarding usage of um, requested pronouns and bathroom policies and potential liability concerns. And so... Um, KDE has concerns about liability when it comes to pronoun usage as well as adopting these bathroom policies because of this case that comes from the 6th circuit which Kentucky is part of.
0: Right. I guess the upshot of this is that districts that want to implement like that want to have, you know, a little bit more permissive bathroom bathrooms in their high schools i guess that have like that allow for gender non-conforming folks to use the the bathroom that comports with their gender identity uh they want to do that they they can do this based on the guidance but you know more conservative ones are probably going to follow that law and and the thing that the kde is saying is like you are then opening yourself up for lawsuits because it's settled law in the sixth district that that's illegal even though sixth circuit that yeah what did i say Sixth District. district. Yeah, Sixth Circuit. Oh, geez. Yeah, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's I think, what the KDE is saying. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, the, the legislature passes laws that are out of step with legal, you know, what's legal all the time. Or what's what's the interpret, the, the you know, what's under, what's the judicial or whatever the the courts have interpreted the law to mean all the time and yeah you have to figure out what to do after that so that's that's a part of their job that's a part of what they're doing here so yeah Um, you know uh, there has been like a pretty significant movement in louisville to, to uh, among like students and teachers that i've seen to to get like you know jcps to to ignore basically to say like just ignore sb 150 um and and this whole situation seems to <laughs> open up a way for for school districts to ignore big parts of it uh because of the way it was written and the guidance that the kde was able to um issue guidance. So so you know, that's, that's good. We'll see what they do. They're going to have to come back and change it next session, I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. So yeah, anything else about SB 150? You want to say Jasmine?
1: Yeah, I, I will just say the guidance certainly, you know, states what Senate Bill 150 requires, you know, it does say like, this section of the bill requires local boards to adopt policies that say this, um, but then they say, again, districts should remain aware aware of the legal landscape on this issue. And so, I mean, they're really just trying to lay it all out there. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, and, and it, it it's really complicated because um, we have the state law now, and then we also have these federal laws like FERPA and um federal case law like this sixth circuit case that they mentioned um and so i think i think it's difficult yeah. <laughs> to provide this guidance
0: yeah yeah but, yeah but
1: the conjunction the conjunction issue doesn't seem that difficult that's how they wrote it
0: it's very straightforward it's just not the way they wanted it to be written if they had spent a little bit more time or built some more partnerships around the law so Way to go, Max Wise. Yeah. You, you you screwed up again. Um, all right. Uh, the other part of the show that we have to talk about are just several quick hits. Um, all right. I'll start. The first is that for decades, Richmond, Kentucky, was home to a bunch of chemical weapons that were housed at the Bluegrass Army Depot. Back in 2019, the process of destroying that chemical agent was begun, and it's actually about to finish so there's this treaty that the United States signed with several other countries related to chemical weapons and ma- destroying a whole bunch of them. So most of that stockpile in Richmond has to be destroyed by the end of the year, and the process is wrapping up for for that to be finished. Now it's it, it is just kind of crazy. I, I I that it's sarin gas, right? It's like super dangerous. It can kill it can kill in mass. Like so it's, it's a little kind of crazy that that was just like stored there in Richmond, you know, pretty close to a bunch of people. So. Yeah, I guess that's good. Maybe sleep a little easier there in Richmond uh, tonight, or whenever they get done doing this. Um, did you know about this chemical stockpile in, in Richmond? And I mean, I don't know. Did is this is this interesting?
1: No, I didn't know about it until I read the story. the The difference between this week and last week is we've we've seen each other's <laughs> notes, and I was able to know what you were going to talk about. Um, so, yeah, I read the story and it they had been there since like the 40s and the 60s yeah and i had no idea but i i saw that like the incident rate in like the process of destroying it was like less than half a percent so it's also impressive that they're able to um like neutralize and destroy these chemical weapons pretty safely
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah, luckily. Yeah, and it had to be that old because before that, um, after that, they weren't allowed to make it anymore because it was so dangerous, <laughs> you know, and that's just like, you know, mm-hmm. you have to keep it somewhere, I guess. Um, okay, next up, following, okay, no, uh, Bellarmine. Uh, this is stories about Bellarmine, which was a small Catholic university in Louisville, Bellarmine University. And it's been in the midst of a significant amount of drama for a couple of months at this point. Um, faculty are frustrated with the emphasis on athletics at Bellarmine, given the, that the university decided to remove several majors post-pandemic. Um, the faculty actually passed votes of no confidence on the university president, the provost, and the senior vice president, that the, the one senior vice president who is most involved with the athletics department. Those votes aren't binding. The faculty can't actually fire anybody. But but the provost did actually leave their post. They're, they're going to step down this week. The Courier Journal has been covering this pretty extensively. Um, it's a pretty interesting story with a lot of different sides, a lot of like other details that I just didn't go over. Uh, but this is drama that's been going on. And higher education is something we've talked about on the show before. A similar sort of drama happened around Kentucky State. It was different, but a little bit similar. Uh, that's a public school. So it does actually have to intersect with the, the legislature and everything. But but you know, the, even though this is a small private Uh, University in Kentucky it's a pretty big deal and it's a pretty important pretty important institution here in Louisville so you know this this isn't great for the school and I certainly hope they get things straightened out there uh, soon so uh, any Bellarmine thoughts Jasmine
1: this story was a little bit interesting to me because I almost went to Bellarmine and I almost worked in college athletics so as a career path instead of law school. So I could have known a lot about the story, but I actually know nothing because I didn't end up doing either (laughs) of those things. But I, you know, I think that they hope that going division one and athletics will pay off. Um, But I don't, but I don't know. I know that they were denied a tournament bid despite winning their, conference championship because they hadn't like made the full transition to division one. And so I'm interested to see like once that happens, if that will pay off for the university. Um, and I, I know that removing majors, they remove major they prioritize removing majors that had less than ten people in the major. Um, but one of the reasons I decided not to go there was because they didn't have the major I wanted. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, they they've always been a liberal arts school, so they really have only ever had like small liberal arts majors, and some of them are pretty small. Uh, yeah, and and yeah, that the, the in the defense uh, that the the administrators give, they did talk about how. Big the you know the winning the conference and having their whole drama like aired on ESPN and et led to a lot of people you know applying to the school. They had a really big class this year, so you know there's there's a lot of pieces to the story. Um, yeah, the Courier Journal has been covering it pretty constantly, so definitely check that out if it's something something you find interesting. Uh, and also, just if you're in Louisville, it's 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 worth knowing because you probably know some. My 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 wife was a college athlete at Bellarmine, so this is important mm-hmm. to her. So there you go. Um, OK, following up on our story about the Lexington growth boundary that we t- I talked about last week, um, there were there were uh, some follow up that went on there. So Mayor Linda Gorton this week stated that she was concerned about the lack of the plan beyond just kind of expand the boundary and called for the council to ensure that the new land allocated for development to that uh, that outside the boundary be set aside for affordable housing. Um, so this is something we did talk about last week and kind of saying there was no plan. The people that voted no on the, the the plan said, you know, the lack of plan was the reason they did so. There were a lot of people that ended up voting yes that raised, you know, concerns around the lack of plan. And yes, now here's the mayor coming out and being like, this is a problem. If we want... More affordable housing, we should say this has to be affordable housing because there's no guarantee there. So, for me, just for me, I think the goal needs to be just like more affordable housing in general um, as an outcome. And, 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 you know, I don't even know if requiring it exists inside of the newly developed area is is a great idea i don't know you know that that land that's being opened is pretty far out and and having affordable housing that's pretty far away from the city center uh you know and the people who need to make use of affordable housing are typically people that have uh more problems with transportation don't always have Mm -hmm. their own car and also like bus service is spotty or further out from the city so like hey we're going to make sure that this development this land out here has affordable housing may not be the best bet but what you have to do is to say okay we're Going to have more single-family dwellings out here, and some of the single-family dwellings inside of the city are going to be transformed into more affordable housing. Yeah, that sort of thing. So I don't know though how you create a plan that requires that. That seems like it would take a lot of time, a lot of work, uh, and that doesn't seem like something that has been done. So you know, it is a tough spot, right? It's a tough spot, and it does kind of seem right now like we're flying without a plan. Uh, so so we'll see. This is something that we're going to keep tracking. It has kind of created a lot of drama there in Lexington. So as it should, you know, it's this only the second time that this boundary has been revisited in, you know, 30 years or something. So that was something I thought was worth mentioning. So glad you glad you uh, see my point there, Jasmine. I guess yeah. anything else about Lexington in this boundary you want to talk about this week? Mm hmm. All right, moving right along, something a little bit more scary. So the KKK dropped flyers in two central Kentucky cities around Lexington this week, Paris and Mount Sterling. Those are the two places that the Herald leader said that that happened. I also read uh, a different story that Silas House was uh, protested by a member of the KKK who, like, showed— Showed him his membership card. So that's pretty bad. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, the flyers that were dropped in Paris and Mount Sterling said, uh, you know, you can, this is the quote, quote, you can sleep sound tonight. The Klan is awake, unquote. And the the flyers also called on people to, quote, report crime and drug dealers, unquote. So, you know, um, the KKK is not a good organization. I certainly hope that we can all agree about that. So it's pretty scary that they are targeting Mount Sterling and Paris as places where they think they might be able to pick up new members. So not great. Um, Anything you want to say about the KKK this week, Jasmine?
1: I mean, just the, it's really scary. I think it's one of those things that like when you're younger and learn about it, you want to think it's something that used to exist in the past. And, and I think I always knew that they still did exist, but it seemed like a more secretive thing. And then, um, maybe in more recent years, it's becoming more and more visible again. Um, and yeah, that's that's definitely really scary.
0: Yep, it is. OK, next up, Liam Niermeyer, who has a very good investigative reporting piece up at the Kentucky Lantern. It's about discounts to power bills given to Alliance Resource Partners to mine Bitcoin in Union County. Union County is in Western Kentucky. It's a, It was, I guess, kind of is a, a major coal-producing county. I, I think there's still mines going out there. Um, but, you know, the industry has absolutely suffered. It definitely doesn't support the level of employment that it used to. And they're looking for other things to fill the gap. And so ARP is a coal mining company uh, owned by Joe Kraft, uh, who was in the news quite a bit this year. His wife, Kelly Kraft ran for governor. Um, Bitcoin mining requires a lot of power, uh, and the discounts given to the company were for more than $4 million to mine Bitcoin with this money. And um, I think that their jobs guarantee was all of five. There were five jobs, I think, that were created. So Bitcoin mining, you know, I think the shine is a little bit off on Bitcoin after last year. And kind of the I think it has experienced quite a few crashes in the past several years. But it does tend to go up real high and then back down. Uh, The reason why it requires a bunch of energy to produce is very, very stupid. So um, uh, uh, it it mostly is like... I don't even want to get into it. I would end up talking for 45 minutes. So uh, it's it's uh, I do not like the idea of Bitcoin mining as an economic engine. Uh, I don't think it provides any value to anybody. Uh, that is real in any kind of way. Um, So it is really disappointing that ARP has decided to pivot from coal, which, you know, for all of its problems is incredibly useful as a mineral uh, to something like Bitcoin, which is not useful at all. Um, And but I guess it's not surprising. So this this story is really good. I definitely encourage you to go read it. The Kentucky Lantern is totally free. There's no reason not to go read it. So I encourage you to do that. So anything you want to say about about this story about arp union county and bitcoin jasmine
1: yeah bitcoin and bitcoin mining is something that i've never really understood i guess my understanding is that um, it uses a lot of electricity because you need very like high powered computers to do a lot of calculations or something um but four million dollars in discount for five jobs and a lot of electricity and energy seems like seems kind of disproportionate to me um and uh, multiple bitcoin mining companies have filed bankruptcy in the last year as well so i i don't know <laughs> i feel like um Deals like this might need more scrutiny.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The one nice thing is when they liquidate all of their computer parts, uh, you can get good video cards for pretty cheap. So that's...
1: That's good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I'm gonna have to stop. The people talk. that
1: need those, I don't know anything <laughs> about that either. I'm
0: gonna have to stop talking about this before I go off on a tangent that we do not want to go off on. Okay. <laughs> Last, lastly, uh, Jason Riley of WDRB in Louisville has an in-depth report about the ways in which LMPD officers acquire long rifles. As of now, I did not know this. As of now, they have to buy their own and they have to be approved by the department, and that's obvi- uh, apparently not super unusual for departments like louisville so if you want to use a long rifle at you know like a a, an automatic weapon or semi like one of those a long rifle i don't know the best way to put it like an ar-15 style rifle um as a police officer you have to provide it yourself and they cost like four figures you know they're like more than a thousand dollars almost always Mm -hmm. um this Policy is slated to change after pressure by the FOP. The the LNPD is going to start providing some number of long rifles to officers to use. Riley's article digs into the issue with a spotlight on Nick Wilt. Uh, you know, it has been a, a major point of content, like something that's been pointed about pointed out about Nick Wilt, who is the officer who was critically wounded during the mass shooting at Old National Bank. Um, that he was very new to the force. This was only like his second or third shift. He was also quite young. Uh, he did not have a long rifle. He did not provide one to himself. He did not buy one. And, you know, he was shot by a long rifle. Um, so that that's kind of the frame in which the story exists. And, and you know, it is, it is interesting, like, that the officer was outgunned, essentially. Um, but to me, you know, I think that any effort we spend to try to solve that problem should be, like, on the supply side, we should be preventing civilians from having access to long rifles to shoot people with instead of providing more long rifles to police officers i think like the fewer people civilians and police that have it the safer i feel i know some people think the more guns the better off but that's not me and i certainly don't think uh the evidence points to more guns being safer in any Uh, any any study that's ever really been done on the subject. So, um, Jasmine, I don't know if you have any thoughts. It involves the police. So I think you might. Uh, What do you think about the police uh, having to provide their own long rifles and the policy change (laughs) to let them have some uh, yeah, department notes?
1: I mean, you already said them, so I don't really have much to add. But I, I mean, ideally, I would like to live in a world where like, we don't. Civilians don't have guns and police don't have guns. But if the police are going to have guns, I don't really have a problem with the department paying for them. It does seem crazy that they have to pay for their own, um, because a lot of the people that go through the academy are like 21 year olds, yeah. Um, so that is if that's the world we live in, that does seem unusual to me, yeah. That's not the world I would like to live in, though. Um, but <laughs> I would. Prefer to prioritize um, removing guns from the people doing the shooting than supplying the police with those
0: guns. <laughs> yeah, I-, I learned that up until, like, actually kind of recently, this is actually still in the article, which is also free, you can check out for free, um, that officers had to provide their own
1: handguns up right. until pretty recently. Erica Shields, who just came in, you know, after the protests yeah. in 2020, um that's who changed that policy yeah
0: um so so yeah i i agree with you i also think that there's like smart ways to implement a policy like this like not everybody gets a long rifle you know there are some officers who are you know well trained and also are the people who are going to be responding to these types of calls uh and and, and, again you should check out the article because he talks about different ways that different police departments across the country have implemented these types of policies so yeah you know yes if if We live in a world where people have access to crazy amounts of weaponry and having the police be undermanned uh, results in situations like we saw in Uvalde with where, like, you know, the police don't respond right away, um, Mm -hmm. which is not what you want. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's right. Okay. well, you know we're leaving off in a place that's super hopeful where we got Bitcoin mines in Union County and Louisville police officers are all getting long rifles. Uh, And the KKK is headed to Paris and Mount Sterling. So, you know, uh, at least the SB 150 implementation looks like it's kind of hit a bit of a snag. Uh, So that's that's good. Uh, But that is our show for this week. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a sporadic newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky Podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network.
0: All right, everybody, thank you for listening. We will see you next week.